all those mistakes are so kind of it's it's not a regret per se because I think you've got to make those mistakes, especially in this industry. It's just about learning from it. You kind of have to throw yourself in the deep end a lot of the time, and you know you come out the other end stronger and, and wiser for it. I suppose. Welcome to the Spark, the podcast which sparks your imagination. I'm Petra Zlotevska. I used to be a lawyer who worked in Sydney, and then I swapped the Bondi Latte for a bike in Berlin, Germany, a city that I never dreamt that I would end up in, and I stayed for 10 years. Now I'm back in Sydney, and I've launched this park. We dig deep into the imaginations of some fascinating people, how they've navigated lessons in their lives as well as in their careers. The guests on the show are going to share with us their secrets of how they connect the seemingly unconnectable dots between resilience, passion and creativity. Sometimes you just get lucky in life. And by lucky, I don't mean winning the lotto or hanging out with George Clooney on his yacht every day, although that probably wouldn't be so bad. I mean lucky as in the people with whom your life paths have crossed. Today's guest embodies those traits of passion, risk-taking and resilience. Sheila Zhaidev is an award-winning film producer, entertainment lawyer and all-round creative powerhouse. Now, truth be told that Sheila is also an old school friend of mine. After we reconnected at our 20-year school reunion, we kept in touch. And boy, am I so glad that we did. Because without that, I wouldn't be able to share with you Sheila's journey to filmmaking. Sheila is absolutely passionate about telling diverse stories ranging from multiculturalism to immigration, racism and family ancestry. She's written and directed various short-form productions and these have screened at film festivals around the world. She also produced Australia's first Muslim rom-com, Ali's Wedding, back in 2016. And her most recent TV series, Stateless, features none other than Kate Blanchett. And this premiered at the Berlin Film Festival earlier in 2020. Sheila, I was just going to start by saying firstly, welcome to The Spark. It's great to finally have this moment uh, post-COVID. And, um, and and after all of the last few months uh, in terms of being housebound, I mean, you actually had a very incredible pre-COVID story. Your last big outing was at the Berlinale. And um, can you please tell our audience about this? Because before I introduce you, I want to launch mm. straight into your Berlinale tell all. So how did it all go? <laughs> Uh, look, I feel so lucky that I managed that one final international trip and it was literally a week after I got back, I think, that um, things got really crazy here and the country was in lockdown. So, yes, I had five glorious days um, attending the Berlinale um, with a TV series that I just produced um, that had been on the ABC and it was premiering at the Berlinale, um, uh, showing amongst other miniseries um, and it was called Stateless. And let's just unpack this a little bit because you not only went to the Berlinale with Stateless and just for our listeners, can you tell us a bit more about what the series is? And you you took your baby along, little baby <laughs> Asha was part yeah. of this whole experience. So tell us a little bit more yeah. about Stateless. 
Yeah, sure. So Stateless is the first television miniseries that I've produced and um, I produced it last year, um, around the middle of last year, and we shot out in August. It's produced uh, as a co-production between the television production company I work for in Australia called Matchbox Pictures and um, in conjunction with Dirty Films, which is Kate Blanchett's production company. And it was an idea that Kate Blanchett actually originated and um, took to her longtime friend, uh, Elise McCready, who was the showrunner and principal writer on the series. And um, uh, Tony Ayres was the other co-creator alongside Kate and um, Elise. And Tony I've known for a long time um, because he was one of the founders of Matchbox Pictures. And I still remember the day very clearly when Tony called me up and said, um, we're looking for a producer to jump on board Stateless. Um, this was sort of at the end of 2018. Would you be interested and I couldn't believe it because I hadn't actually produced a television series before I'd only produced a feature film and um, a load of shorts and I knew that this was quite a you know premium project um, with you know uh, the wonderful Kate Blanchett behind it um, and also in a cameo role and you know it was it's a series that's um basically looks at um the lives of four people whose lives intersect at an immigration detention centre in the middle of the Australian desert. So I knew that the themes would really resonate with me on a personal level, um, you know, the, the deep dive into the issues of immigration policy and how we treat refugees, but looking at it from a multifaceted perspective. So the series follows um, the life of a Afghan refugee who's trying to uh, make it to Australia for a better life for his family. Uh, another one of the characters is a bureaucrat, a highly ambitious bureaucrat who's sent to the detention centre to try and contain a national scandal. Um, there's also the story of a young Australian woman who winds up in our fictional detention centre due to some anxiety issues that she has. Um, and there's also the story of a young guard, a father of three who starts work at the detention centre. So it's sort of a multi-perspective look at the issue. It's not um, at all didactic or preachy by any means. It's a really uh, beautiful sort of human story with a lot of impact and power, I'd like to think anyway, and, you know, about a about subject matter that I think that we should all be talking about a lot more than we, um, you know, that, uh, and, a matter, and about subject matter that we need to be looking at uh, from a deeply sort of compassionate human perspective to avoid all the politicking and it's, you know, it's been politicized so, so greatly. And um, so, yeah, it spoke to me on many levels. And so, of course, I jumped at the opportunity to have my first producing um, TV producing credit on a series like this. So, um, yeah, we finished uh, making it in 2019 and it premiered on the ABC um, in February of this year. And then just before the ABC premiere, we were in Berlin. Well, I think it was just almost so auspicious that you were at the Berlinale, you came back, and then a week later, as you said, we went into a kind of international lockdown. So everyone was able to binge watch Stateless. So I hope that that actually <laughs> did take yes. place. And especially, right. as you said, and when I was watching the series, this was exactly sort of what came through, this just fundamentally human story that, you know, there's characters like this that we – either may have already met in our lives or we may know or we may yet to mm -hmm. meet. I mean, it'll be really rare to not actually encounter someone who's been entwined in either a, who's a refugee themselves or has a family member or knows someone that works as an advocate for refugees. So I was just going to say I think the binge-watching mm. aspect plus the human story 
to that, mm. um, especially now when we all had such a long time to kind of do some self-reflection and we were not able to con- yes. connect with humans to, yeah. the, to, yeah. the, to, the, to how we were used to was really auspicious. For most of us, we've never had a red carpet experience. And you've had a couple. Um, but really, what is it like to kind of see your, you know, this was like your third baby because you've seen, you came on board, you, you've been, you know, you came into it, as you said, it was a little bit later in the piece, but in any case, you were there to kind of see it to full completion. What were you mm. thinking as you were there in Berlin? And February in Berlin is extremely cold. I know I spent <laughs> 10 Berlin winters. But what was going through your mind as you were there? What was kind of the main highlight for you in bringing this third baby into the world? Yeah. Look, I had to pinch myself because there were so many moments um, in the lead up to Berlinale where I wasn't sure whether I'd be able to go. And that's because we were wrestling with, um, you know, advice about coronavirus and long haul flights and, you know, with an infant. So my second baby, um, Kieran was only three months old at the time. So, uh, and leaving my toddler behind as well, even though it was just for a week and, you know, would we take the whole family? Would I not? So even just being there was just such a privilege and an honor to be able to see the project through. And there's nothing more gratifying than, um, sharing work that you've poured so much time and energy into in front of an audience. Because when you make TV, um, often you don't get that luxury. It's, um, you know, it's, it's broadcast onto televisions. It's not like, um, you get to sit in a cinema and, um, experience your work, uh, as a collective experience with other people who are watching. And th- that's quite a magical thing because you can actually sort of feel the energy of an audience and, mm. um, their levels of engagement when you sit in a fully, you know, in a fully packed theatre like um, what we had in Ber- in Berlin and just sort of sense that, you know, no one was shifting around or distracted or, you know, we could just tell that everybody was wholly engaged um, with the series and also the fact that it was uh, up on a big screen because we put a lot of effort into what the series looks like. We took It was a very cinematic kind of big screen experience on one level, um, you know, with the incredible work done by our designer and our director of photography and our directors. So to see it up on the big screen um, in front of an audience um, was just pretty special. And to think that I had a (laughs) three-month-old asleep in the hotel room while all this was happening, um, yeah, it was a really special time. And I don't know, just also, I mean, the only way it was possible was because my sister, God bless her, at the very last minute cleared the decks and said, you know what, don't bother trying to take your husband and your toddler with you just for, you know, uh, manufacturing a holiday around Berlin, um, you know, at that time of year and with the weather and everything. She said, I'll, I'll come with you and help you out with the baby because I couldn't leave the baby behind when she was three months and I'm still feeding and dependent on me. So we just had a really special time as well. It was kind of this wonderful moment where I kind of felt how important, um, you know, having that village um, around you and that family support when you're trying to juggle um, your career with um, with family and in that moment I managed to have it all which was pretty amazing and I actually have to apologize I have met the beautiful baby Kieran and I think I said <laughs> Asha came on the trip but we know that oh, <laughs> that was right. just Asha's, you. The, toddler. Asha's yeah. the toddler and Sheila yeah. and I've got to make a little bit of a, um, a disclosure at this point I have known Sheila I've had the privilege and the pleasure to know Sheila since our school days and Sheila has always been someone who's extremely committed to social justice and kind of looks at the world from a little bit of a different angle to most of us. And I 
know when you when I'd asked the question about how you kind of came to produce, um, you know, you've worked on Ali's wedding and, and now we stateless. But could you take us a little bit back and share? Because I don't know what you want it to be when you were growing up. Mm, yeah, sure. Yeah, I was thinking back through that today and I was sort of reflecting on, you know, how do you sum up your um, career, I suppose, to date. Um, and in school, as, you know, as early as when I was 16 years old and we were choosing where to do work experience, I knew I wanted to be in the film industry and I did um, a placement with a film producer. Um, but back then I wanted to be a director and I had all these grand uh, ambitions, as you do when you're 16 years old, of, you know, making a feature by the time you're 21 and, you know, all these things that never actually happened um but uh, it was it was definitely something I've, I've wanted to do um since I was a teenager be in the industry I didn't know that I would end up producing at that time I think because I didn't actually know what a producer does um but straight out of uh school um I enrolled in a double degree at uh, UTS um studying media arts and production which was uh to fulfill you know my my dreams of um entering the film industry but and this might well be part of you know um coming from from migrant backgrounds, my parents are from India, and knowing that I needed a bit of a career with some a, a bit of security um, in whatever vocation I chose, so I, I was doing law as well. And by no means do I regret doing the law. Um, I did enjoy it, um, but it was never my number one passion. Um, and straight out of uni, I didn't immediately get. Um, any jobs within the film industry because it is such a hard industry to crack. Um, so instead, I'd started doing my legal training at the Aboriginal Legal Service. Um, and after I completed that, I got a job uh, working in the Children's Legal Service. And I did that for about 18 months, uh, basically working in criminal law, but defending juveniles. And that was, you know, quite a a profound sort of time for me, I suppose. Uh, it's quite emotional. It's um, you're carrying you're, the things that you see um, every day in court with these young people involved in the justice system, and you know, coming from very disadvantaged backgrounds, and you know, doing what you can to make a difference to their life. Um, was you know, I think I was 25 years old at the time, so it was um, yeah, it was quite it was quite a important chapter of my life. Um, but again, I still knew in the back of my mind that I still wanted to get into film so uh, it was quite a strange thing to go from criminal law to finding my first uh, job as a paralegal in an entertainment law firm and that was done um, purely through connections a friend of mine said that her um, cousin was working in an entertainment law firm and would I like to meet them and I did and got a job as a paralegal and then worked as an entertainment lawyer for pretty much I think gosh eight to ten years at a not that entire time at an entertainment law firm um, but uh, through at that time I was making short films I was directing a documentary um, until finally one of the clients of the law firm wanted to bring me in-house into a new company that they were starting and that was Matchbox Pictures and gradually I began to spend um, you know part-time work within the within this production company working in business affairs um, but balancing it with the law until ultimately um they knew, Matchbox Pictures knew early on that I didn't want to be a lawyer forever. Um, 
start. So they were looking for opportunities to uh, give me a shot at producing something, and that's how Ali's wedding came about. Uh, they knew that I wanted that I was particularly interested in telling diverse stories because of my own background, um, and Ali's wedding was very much that type of a film. And so they attached me to that project first as an associate producer, and as the years went on, because feature film development takes that long, I gradually um, sort of climbed the ranks, so to speak, and was then a co-producer until ultimately um, they let me produce it um, alongside another producer at Matchbox, but still it was my first feature film producing credit. So it was a very, I guess it was a long journey. It was 10 years, I think, from you know, first working in entertainment law to be able to uh, then put that behind me because once I produced Ali's Wedding, I, I didn't renew my practicing certificate. I haven't had to go back <laughs> to being a lawyer, which is just, um, you know, I didn't think that day would come. But now I, I, I do manage to sustain myself um, working as a producer, uh, first and foremost. So, yeah, that's my my journey via law <laughs> well, in the world of film. Well, that's the thing that I think is so fascinating, that law as – and I've got a law degree too it's almost like a slab of butter you know you can always kind of come back to it and you know slather that on to a piece of bread when you really need to and what is extremely motivating I think not just for me but for our listeners is to hear that it's been you know you've put in the hard work for a decade and you created your own production company and that was Emerald Mm. Productions and through that as your vehicle um you could you maybe tell us a little bit about some of the smaller productions that you worked on and just to give everyone a sense for that legwork, you know, it's a lot mm. behind the scenes. Uh, it's not just so glamorous. One of the, the crucial steps along the way was I, I um, won a short film competition and the prize was uh, a scholarship to attend afters. And so I enrolled um, part-time, so I was still working full-time in the producing course. And during that time when I was at afters, the film and television school, I met two other producers and we formed a company in 2019 called Emerald Productions. And through Emerald Productions, um, we produced quite a few short films. And since then, we've done a couple of features as well. And, you know, it, it, it is really tough. Like the short film game, um, it's a loss leader. You end up investing your own money in it. Um, it's not really a format you can monetize. So essentially, um, Emerald Productions, it was, sure, it was a business, but it was not one where we were, uh, we all had other jobs to, to sustain us. We didn't, it was not um, a commercial venture, so to speak. It was one where we could um, fulfill our creative desires to make content and to build a portfolio and to get the runs on the board. Um, and you know only now are we starting to now solely focus on feature films and we're not doing any more short films but the short film training ground is just wonderful for you know relationship building and finding your partners your creative partners that you want to work with but it was it was really tough like we definitely invested a lot of our own money um in the productions that we made but you know all those most of the productions won awards and did really well and um you know served their purpose to to you know teach us what we needed to know but also show the industry that we can execute um good content um yeah so it it was it was a long haul but you know i'd also like to touch on what you're saying about the law i've got to say it, it, it is absolutely that grounding and that basis that i've carried with me um in terms of the training and just you know uh, not just you know the, the obvious connections of knowing how to draft a contract or understand a license agreement mm. but just the rigor and and the attention to detail and um you know 
know, the way that your your mind works, I suppose. I carry those skills with me every day as a, as a producer and, and I definitely don't look back on that at all. But, yeah, I think anything in the film industry is such a um, long road and a, and a, and a hard slog mm. and the moment that you do get to step on that red carpet, it's, uh, you know, those moments only come a few times in your career, which is why I wanted to do whatever I could to get to the Berlinale to celebrate that moment. And I think that's so testament to your tenacity, Sheila, and this is kind of <laughs> you as a person in addition to having that legal training, which also teaches discipline and persistence and tenacity. I think um, it just really shows through your work because that consistency and that passion with, you know, you put your money where your mouth is and and, and you said you won that prize to um, be able to go to afters. What was the competition that you'd entered? Yeah, so this is such an interesting story because it was um, it was called the Real Deal Film Competition, and it was um, it was a film festival where the patron was Brian Brown. It was out in the western suburbs, out of Reesby, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think my mum was the one who read about it in the newspaper and said you should enter this western western suburbs. Um, short film competition and I think you had to include I, I think I might be, not be remembering this correctly but you might have had to include a signature item or, or something in, in the film although I'm, I can't I don't know if I've got that correct but I entered two years in a row because the first year I got in but didn't win anything and the second year it was when we won best film best script and maybe even one other prize um and so it was her that actually you know put it in front of me and it was you know, I grew up in um, uh, in in Sydney's western suburbs, and my dad had his practice out in um, Greenacre Bankstown. So there were a lot of kind of connections with this film festival and Brighton Brown, you know, passionately out um, out there as well. So uh, interesting how uh, my break, so to speak, came from something my mother <laughs> put in front of me, and you know, God bless her, she you know um, is. Uh, an immigrant that has always kind of pushed my ambitions to to crack the film industry. So, yeah, that was um, – I've got her to thank, I think, for that. Well, I think often our mums know us better than we know ourselves. You know, they, right. they, they, they birthed right. us. And for which, yes. which film had you won that prize? It was called Text Me. And Text so it was me. sort of when things were becoming all about mobile phones and it was just a bit of a sort of a comedy and it was all done um, by subtitles so about a, about a girl um, trying to work out, um, trying to, I think, analyze the text messages of this boy that she just met and should she type back and, you know, the, the, the scene and not reply, that kind of thing. So and you never saw people's faces. It was all about just the way we communicate and invest so much time in our screens. Back then it was um, <laughs> it was a big deal. Now it's just part of the course in our lives, isn't it? So It absolutely yeah. is. And I think we've got to add Zoom into that kind of package, yes, into that right. t- into the tech package, especially for yes. us digital, digital. Um, we're not really digital natives. We're digital um, pen- oh, gosh, pen- yeah. pen- we're digital pensioners. Like, what would you call That's right. it? Yep. <laughs> digital retirees. Um, but you see, this is the thing about, as you said, your mum put that ad in front of you and you applied and you did it two years in a row and just that tenacity because you ended up going from this film festival in Reesby and if I've got my chronology mm-hmm. right and you then were able to win an internship in London had that with Ridley Scott was mm, that mm. following the film that was following the that. Wind. it was quite yeah. a few quite years. a few years after that yeah so um 
I think I had been working for Matchbox for a couple of years still part-time as their business affairs manager, but still producing the short films and Screen Australia ran these initiatives where I think they were called talent as escalator initiatives where you could apply to do an internship with a big overseas company. And um, uh, I knew of people who had done uh, an internship with Ridley Scott's company, Scott Free in London. And so I put my hat in the ring and applied um, for an attachment there. So you need to contact the company and make sure they are happy to host you and go through an interview process with them. So I um, went through that process with Scott Free in London and Screen Australia chose me to, to go over there, which was just um you know, fantastic. I think I was 31 at the time. And it was, it was a real, that, that again was quite a big breakthrough because what that did is it sort of signaled to the industry that if Screen Australia are willing to trust me as a producer and not as an entertainment lawyer, that sort of rebranding exercise kind of began um, when I came back. And when I came back, that was the point when also Matchbox said, well, no, you're no longer an associate producer in Ali's Wedding. You need to be a co-producer. And then eventually that became producer. So it was just a really good sort of moment just to sort of um, you know, show the industry that I'm serious about this. I don't want to just be doing the legals on films. I want to be making the films. So, and it, it gave me six months where I could, for the first time in my life, purely focus on film. I'd hitherto been always balancing up the legal work with the development work and making films, you know, uh, working late into the nine and working weekends and taking time off from the law to go and make the short films. But this was six months of, of purely being able to immerse myself in the world of development and, you know, reading books and putting them forward for adaptations, reading scripts, um, sourcing ideas, all the stuff that I'd always wanted to do but just um, never really had the job uh, back in Australia to, to, to follow through with. So, yeah, that was definitely um, a really uh, amazing time and um, a bit of a watershed moment. And for the uninitiated amongst us, I mean, Ridley Scott is huge. Can you tell us huge. a bit what that experience, who, firstly, who is this person? And secondly, yes. a little bit more about that experience in London and what you actually got to do day to day as yeah, part of it. Sure. Yeah, no, he's such a legend. And I've got to say, I only met him maybe a handful of times while I was over there. Um, and every time, um, I sort of, you know, had my heart in my hand. It was always just, oh my gosh, it's, um, so Ridley Scott, this is, quite extraordinary and you know he was absolutely wonderful and nice and you know uh very approachable and you know wanted to talk to me about going to melbourne to white city to watch the tennis or whatever <laughs> the connection was but um uh yeah my actual uh dealings with Ridley scott um himself was never direct um it was always through um the head of features or the head of tv at the company and um yeah so working in development there um one of my primary jobs was what they called doing coverage, so reading books that had been presented to the company, often ahead of publication. So um, literary agents and publishers would send through manuscripts and say, before this go- goes on sale, would you like to bid for the film rights? So um, uh, companies at that level have that privilege of mm-hmm. reading unpublished manuscripts. Wow. And so I would read the books and do up you know, a couple of pages summarising what the story was, whether it could be made, in, in my opinion, could be made into a a film or television series um what else did I do I read a lot of script submissions that agents put forward from their writers and again did similar reports for that um I was put on um sort of ideas tracking which essentially means keeping your uh 
ears and eyes out for headlines, true stories, newspaper, you know, articles, whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, yeah, really just trying to find the next big story that could potentially be made um, into a feature or a TV. And also I was lucky enough, because this doesn't happen very often, where people say to you, well, do you have ideas, original ideas or otherwise, um, for potential TV and, and film propositions? Um, so that was, that was, it was great. It was very, very creative, but also a lot of reading. <laughs> I love reading and coverage. Yeah. What was your proposition? What did you put forward? Oh gosh, I can barely remember. I think um, oh, I'd probably be too embarrassed to say now. I <laughs> oh, come on. I, I do. I do have a vague recollection, but I don't know that. Um, yeah, a bit embarrassing, Petra. I think. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, uh, it, yeah, it didn't get picked up. Let's put it that way. But um, it was fun. It was still a fun exercise. I yeah. was going to say exactly. It's part of that. Just you know, letting the brain uh, yep. be free and having that validation in a way that um, what you have to say really matters and that's why yeah. you're ultimately there. And, I mean, yeah. again, Ridley Scott, did he not produce or direct um, Gladiator? Yes, that's his, what? absolutely. And he's done yep. a few others. Uh, yes, he's done a whole host of things since then, but that was, you know, that was back the, then. the major one and the Academy Award winning role for Russell Crowe and, and the like. So, yeah, no, pretty, I mean, Delman Louise, like pretty extraordinary um films in um that he's yeah that he's got credit that he's directed so yeah definitely a legend of film and i suppose this kind of leads me to my next thought about you being such a almost i guess we could call you a veteran of the industry i mean what is one myth that you want to debunk something that you yourself (laughs) are a stereotype that you completely debunked for yourself or you want to kind of unpack for us? Absolutely. Um, yeah, look, oh, that's hilarious that you think of me as a veteran. I'm definitely not. (laughs) I think I'm, I think I'm technically mid career. I'm not even late career. Um, because I've only done, uh, uh, one or two features, let's say, and, um, a television series, but I'm really hoping in the next 10 years that, you know, I'll be producing, um, a series or a feature film, uh, one every two to three years. Um, so what, yeah, what would be a, a myth? I think, um, a lot of people don't really know what a producer does and neither did I when I first started out. So often you hear people say, oh, you're a producer. That means that you get the money together to, to mm. make the film. And, um, now that I have been working as a producer for, you know, full time for about six years, um, it's just become clear just how, how much people think that, but where, where the opposite is true. I mean, there's definitely, um, producers who might, only want to focus on sort of packaging the film, finance, raising and, and the business and legal side of things. But the more holistic um, producer or the creative producer, which is uh, what most producers sort of um, do, is, is a lot more creative and it's working, you know, it's identifying ideas, it's bringing a team together, you know, finding the best writer or director um, or um, and working closely with the writer throughout development, giving notes on script, giving, you know, reviewing the, the casting tapes, like working really hand in hand with the director to help protect their vision of how it should, um, look. So I think the finance raising, um, for me anyway, is, is but a very small element of what, um, a, a producer does. And it's the all encompassing sort of much more holistic, um, carriage of a, of a project that you have as a producer that what, a, that, that is what a to me to make that jump from um, no I actually don't want to be a director I want to be a producer because I want to be across this project from its inception right through the very end to its marketing and publicity Mm. um, and and to have that overall um, 
yeah, overall responsibility for the project, I suppose, um, mm. is what I find most gratifying. So that's probably the one sort of myth um, I'd like to debunk in terms of what exactly producers do. They're not about just finance raising. They're not just about controlling the budget and crushing the director's dreams. <laughs> Quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah. I think that's such an important distinction because it seems like such a rarefied world. I mean, we've all grown up going to the cinema and now in the age of, you know, streaming um, on various devices, it's kind of um, a much more passive activity in terms of what we consume and the content that you as a filmmaker put out. So does that mean then that a director is actually recruited by you as 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 a producer? You bring that director mm-hmm. in and they're kind of there for a set period of time and then they're kind of out of the they're, – they're out of that yep. – they're out of the pipeline. So – if you can just clarify yeah. for us. Yeah, sure. Um, it depends on the project. So there are some features where the director is also the writer or the director's um, been on the feature film from the get-go. So they can uh, it can be the reverse. They can sort of approach you and bring you on board to be the producer of the project. Um, and, you know, there are some extraordinary directors where we'll be pitching to them to say, come on board this project. We want you. Please consider it, that sort of thing. So it really depends um, on the project. TV is much more writer-driven. So directors come in um, once you're pretty much close to financing and close to shooting. So they're often not involved, um, not without exceptions, but Generally speaking, um, they're not involved during the development that much. And then once you're ready to go, you'll, again, start that whole process of trying to find the best director for it, whether that's pitching to a director that, you know, it's an offer to them, you know, uh, we should be so lucky to have them, or whether it's um, directors pitching for the work. It can, it, can, it can work both ways. But certainly in television, directors are, um, do often come in um, later in the game and, um, you know, they'll be, they'll be absolutely involved across post-production. And, and in the marketing and publicity, but um, they'll often be not responsible for the entire distribution and the publicity like the producer um, will be. So, And feature films, I think, is a lot more director-driven. So, again, it's often that they're on much earlier, um, especially if they're the writer, then it's their project and they'll bring you on. So it really it varies. And it's interesting that you had made that shift for yourself in your mind about kind of, Mm. abandoning director work to becoming a producer. Um, yeah. How, I mean, if you could name three people who have had a prolific influence on your work and helping you to kind of shape a lot of your decisions and um, your life and your, I guess, your career path. Because, I mean, I also need to flag at this point, you know, Sheila is just, she's so multi Skilled, multi-talented. You speak several languages. I mean, you've, you know, how, how could you, if you had to name three people, who would those people be in terms of their influence on you? Gosh, that is such a tricky question. Um, yeah. Well, because I told you that story about my mother putting mm. an article in front of me, I'd probably have to say without that sort of backing and support and that push from her, day to day to say, you know, you can do it. And I still remember when I first got funding to make my first documentary as a writer director, um, you know, she, she was an associate producer on that documentary. Aww. She was so involved. Um, and she really kind of held me up to a very high standard. I still remember the day when she sort of said, and it maybe sounds a little bit almost mean, but it was like, oh, well, if you don't, 
work harder at it, then it won't be the best it can be. Yeah. So there's also a work ethic that she sort of instilled in me. Um, I guess oh, I've had so many mentors in the film industry. Uh, probably one of the most critical or important to me um, is Tony Ayres, who I mentioned earlier because, you know, he was one of the um, three producers at Matchbox who brought me on to Ali's wedding, which was his um, baby. It was, it was a project he found. And similarly, he brought me on to Stateless. And he's just, um, oh, I don't know, one of the most um, creatively brilliant minds um, that I've seen working on script. He's, you know, got a, a, a great sense of wanting to bring out drama and nuance. Um, he's a huge supporter of diverse stories. So there's just a lot of synergies in terms of the work that he makes and um, and his politics, I suppose, and, and the way that he um, works in the industry that um, I find very um, inspiring. And then I guess I'd go back to if I'm just looking, you know, way out into the world about – you know, who are those directors that have um, sort of inspired me by their work, I guess. Um, uh, Mira Naya, I used to always say, is one of my uh, favourite directors. And, you know, the, the art of cinema, it's um, we don't all go to the cinemas that much, but um, Monsoon Wedding is just an experience mm. where I went into the cinema and I just, I just fell in love and, and thought, I want to make a film like that. And I still do. I just think it's beautiful. And she's done such amazing work that's, you know, uh, set in the Indian community but is consumed globally and it's just got such universal themes and um, really takes that phrase local for global and, and executes it um, with such a plum. So, yeah, tricky question, but that's how I'd land on, I think. And I suppose now that we're, you know, at least in Australia where we are, we're kind of coming out of COVID and We've had time to reflect and you, you know, we're sitting here today uh, having this chat. I mean, have you got a new project up your sleeve that you're able to comfortably talk about or is there, you know, something that you've really, you said, you know, in the next decade you'd like to um, be a producer on a, on a feature film or on, a, on another series. So how, mm. yeah, where are you at in your thoughts or in your kind of, passion pipeline sure sure look i've got a bunch of television projects in development with matchbox pictures that i'm super excited about um but there's one feature film that i really hope to be shooting at the end of the year um if we can get the finance together and um if uh the restrictions lift in terms of COVID and we can work it out um and it's a project that i've been um working on for the last couple of years and it's essentially a feature uh, anthology or a feature compendium consisting of eight chapters and each chapter is written by a, a diverse writer, a emerging writer from Western Sydney. Mm -hmm. And um, it was part of a, you know, a application process where um, writers put forward uh, their material to be considered. Um, it's a co-production between Emerald Productions, my company, and another company called Co-Curious who have done some great work in Western Sydney and um, uh, similar to Emerald have this passion for telling um, their byline is stories from another Australia. So really um, nurturing voices and underrepresented voices and diverse voices to give them a platform um, at a properly funded level um, in, in, the, in the screen industry. So uh, that project, um, like I said, I really hope that we'll be shooting um, at the end of the year. And I think it's just, it'll be quite a novel format. It's It's got an overarching uh, premise or narrative, but it's, a cent it's also, you know, eight chapters and eight uh, different stories written by these really incredible 
um, emerging writers. So, you know, in this day and age where uh, it's just very interesting and, and very gratifying to finally sort of see this like industry-wide push where diversity is not just something that's niche or to be, you know, championed by a select few, but it's actually a, it, it, it's a issue and something that everybody needs to get behind. Um, I'm, you know, really proud to be uh, producing uh, that feature film at this time and otherwise, I guess. So, yeah. I was also just thinking, as you said, that diversity sort of coming into its own. I mean, I've also, you know, I'm a firstborn um, mm. generation Australian. I was just kind of thinking now in light of even Black Lives Matter, what's going to happen mm-hmm. when diversity becomes so mainstream? I mean, is it then yeah. it's kind of um, – in terms of its genre, you know, yes. it's like it's no longer just the outsiders. We're all going to become so right. the mainstream as, as these yep. firstborn um, migrants or children of migrants. And I yes. suppose you touched on that with, you know, given the state of film and, and producing and, and having gatherings. I mean, how has this global pandemic affected the morale of your industry, you know, just actors? What do they call mm. it? Like directors, the catering people who are on the film shoots, like how has that, you know, you've got the word on the street. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, look, I think it's been really hard and especially it's hit the production crew and directors and anyone who works on set primarily. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, writers and producers, I feel like we've been a bit more protected because we can still work from our homes. Um, mm-hmm. We can still develop or write or, you know, package things up. But production crew, it's been awful. I mean, there's been so many productions that have had to halt um, and because of the loopholes of the government's job seeker package, I think a lot, pretty much the entire production industry because they're not PAYG employees missed out on um, any financial assistance so I've got and you know I've got lots of friends who are basically just you know waiting it out whose bread and butter uh, is making making films we're starting to come out the other end and you know there are COVID protocols to how we can remount productions and you know have the sanitizers at every base and um, have the full-time nurse on have extra cleaning and um, choreographing um set pieces where people maintain their social distance like it's it's pretty extraordinary um uh how 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 much we'll have to adapt um to to this new world that we live in but um yeah look it shows it does show the tenacity of the industry just to um you know uh find ways through i mean i think there was a series that's recently being released where it was pretty much made through zoom chats and i've also got a friend who's directing via zoom um and the camera's in you know the actor's house and you know people are just finding ways to keep the content coming um despite you know um all the restrictions well i think it's so true that necessity is the mother of invention and um, i'm just thinking about your new production with the eight chapters how uh, Mm. i hope there's no kind of love scenes or any intimate moments because they're gonna have to be (laughs) written out because I don't know how people are going to have physical contact or embrace I don't know I'm not sure I had the same thought I was like how in how do you mount a scene where people have to stay a meter and a half from each other apparently there are some there's some flexibility there or there's ways that you can do it but um I, and I, I haven't done enough reading to work out exactly how, but it, the mind boggles how. Because mm. on a film set, you know, everybody's so close to each yeah. other. You know, from the focus puller and the you know camera operator, they're just you know they're on the same camera. I don't actually know how how it will work, but um, you know, like you say, we have to we have to find a way through. Yeah, and I guess you'll live to tell the tale. I mean, if yes. we could, you know, where 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 um. I'm just coming to the end and I've got just a couple more questions. How um, possible 
is it when you think back and if you could travel back in time and meet mm. your 25-year-old self, you know, you would have finished school, finished your combined degree. What would you tell 25-year-old Sheila? Uh, I think, um, look, I was a bit, I was a little bit impatient around that time. I was getting a bit sort of down about why am I stuck doing law when I should be, um, you know, pursuing the film um, opportunities. So I'd probably just tell myself, be a little bit patient. Don't try and rush things. Take your time because you will come out the other end, um, you know, stronger, wiser, um, and and with more experience, more life experience, I guess. And, and that counts for a lot. And I actually am enjoying the process of aging because that maturity, I don't know, it does, it just, I don't know, bring, it makes you more level-headed. It brings you perspective. I think you can... Not in all cases. I think there's some brilliant younger filmmakers, absolutely. But um, just for me, I think I'll just say, just cool your jets a little bit and enjoy the ride. Know that it's all important um, to the overall journey. Yeah. And I think because you are such a tenacious person, you've had lots of ups and downs and you've really stuck through, um, you know, you've navigated two careers. I mean, you know, we have people, I, I don't even know if it's possible to talk about failure or success, but was there sort of one key moment where you really thought, oh my God, like I just, I've really, you know, effed up. How am I going to move beyond this? Could you talk <laughs> us through how you got one of those, oh my God, moments um, I have effed up? How, yeah. to, how did you navigate out of that? Oh gosh, I think um, I think you have one of those moments on every single production. Like the the intensity of filmmaking, like how quickly you build a family and you work on a production so intensively, and it's it's quite a stressful, you know, high octane environment. There'll always be moments where you're like, oh, I wish I didn't, you know, react a certain way, or I wish I'd been more front footed and or you know more across things or less cowardly or whatever it might be. Um, I don't know. There was a time in my career where it was all about getting the runs on the board and just taking any opportunity to make content and not really vetting the project as closely as um, I now probably have the luxury to do. So I think I, um, I I guess my biggest learning would be I took on a project where I didn't quite feel the creative um, and it just didn't work out and I lost a lot of money on it. Um, I just probably didn't see eye to eye with the key creatives on that project but felt the need to do it anyway. Mm. And um the train, it, it was a train wreck, I guess. The train left the station and I was running yeah. um, behind it to try and keep up and it was, um, you know, um, pretty devastating time. I was, it was probably the most stressed out I've been just because of the financial loss that I suffered um, uh, in that process of just not being experienced enough and uh, not really taking the time to think, is this a project that I really want to do? But, you know, I, all those mistakes are so kind of, uh, it's, it's not a real regret per se, because I think you've got to make those mistakes, especially in this industry. It's just about learning from it. You kind of have to throw yourself in the deep end a lot of the time. Um, and you know, you come out the other end stronger and, and wiser for it, I suppose. So yeah, it's frightening <laughs> at the time, but, um, uh, you know, we, um, they're all learning opportunities, aren't they? They are. And I think you're really a person who demonstrates conquering fear or you feel or you feel the fear and you kind of do it anyway and I hope that that's mm. what um you know today in our interview listeners can kind of take away from this that you're a person who really just puts your whole heart and soul into a project and now with a bit of hindsight you're mm. you know you've got that perspective as you said and so just where can we find out more about your work where can our listeners find you online 
Yeah, sure. Um, well, I do have a uh, production company we- website, www.emeraldproductions.com.au. Um, I'm not very active on the social media. But <laughs> I'm one of those stalkers. I don't actually post, post. much, but I'm, I'm always watching. <laughs> okay, you're a lawyer on, on social media. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Sheila, I just wanted to take this moment to say a huge, huge thank you for being so generous with your time and your energy and your insights you know this is really like a crash course in film production for many of us Um, we don't often get to hear you know the the kind of dark side of this world and it seems very glorified and verified but you've really kind of unpacked that for not just for for me but I think for everyone that's going to be listening so I wanted to say a deep and hearty thank you and um, you have to probably get back to baby Kieran so uh, thank you once (laughs) again for your time and everyone look out honor I never thought I'd be I listened to a lot of podcasts and I never actually imagined myself being interviewed for one and it was a moment where I had to conquer my fear so there you go there you go so thank you so there we have Sheila Jadev who's a film producer and uh, founder of Emerald Productions well there you go what a woman Sheila Jadev film producer on Stateless and Ali's Wedding and the business affairs manager at Matchbox Pictures and also one of the few humans that I have the privilege of knowing who went on an overseas trip that's right in an aeroplane to Berlin a mere two weeks before the global lockdown. Thank you so much for joining in to today's episode. I don't know about you, yet it never ceases to amaze me how often the seeds of self-doubt can actually be cured through resilience and the pursuit of passion. And Sheila exemplifies these traits so beautifully. But also, as she acknowledges, often all it takes is for a friend or loved one to gently tip us over the edge and through her mum's support, and she entered that first film competition. So if you're tuning in from overseas, you can watch the production Stateless with Kate Blanchett, Evan Strahovski, Asha Ketty, and that will be on Netflix US. If you're in Australia, you're able to watch Stateless free to wear on iview which is through the abc online portal and i'll put these links up on the show notes as well as sheila's other film work so i hope that you've been having an amazing week so far i would love to hear what you've been up to Uh, drop me a line or put up a review on the page keep sparking